welcome to the Grok Science Show. My name is Chanan Zhang. Today's interview is with Dr. Brad Gemmel. Dr. Gemmel got his PhD at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, and I actually first met him while I was doing my master's degree there back in 2010 on the beautiful island of Port Aransas, Texas. After getting his PhD, Dr. Gemmel did a postdoc at the Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole and recently published a fascinating paper about the real reason why seahorses are shaped like horses. I got a chance to catch up with him and find out more about his really neat research with these little creatures. What do you picture in your head when you think about a seahorse? A gentle creature that glides gracefully through the water? Or a comical little animal with an identity crisis? As it turns out, there's a darker side to seahorses that is coming to light with the recent investigation into their hunting behavior. For people who don't really know much about them, you know, the first time they see them, uh, a lot of people don't even associate them with being a fish. They're, they're so unique and, and sort of the way they, they move, they sort of have this uh, majestic, odd shape that just sort of, I think, captures people's attention and interest. And uh, the, the fact that they're generally considered to be, you know, when you when you watch them in an aquarium or, or see them in the wild or something, they're, they, they appear to be these very sort of docile creatures that are just sort of, cruising gracefully around, um, and the fact that, you know, they turn out to be, you know, you know, they're, they're carnivorous, so they're, they're highly predatory, and they're, they're such amazing predators, and they've got this, this really unique method to, uh, to sort of capture one of the ocean's greatest escape artists, so it's kind of, kind of cool. Before we go further into details about the predatory practices of the seahorse, Let's hear a little about how Dr. Gemmel came to study the interactions between predator and prey in the ocean and what exactly it is that the seahorses are trying to catch for dinner. So, yeah, I mean, when I first started my Ph.D. work, I was sort of interested in, uh, you know, interactions in, uh, of predators and prey and sort of just how you know, how, how predators are able to capture prey and then subsequently this sort of arms race that you get, a sort of evolutionary arms race uh, where, you know, predators are adapting and evolving uh, ways to sort of overcome the prey's uh, defense mechanisms and simultaneously you have prey that are, are being sort of subjected to high predation pressure so there's you know, the strong, strong selective pressure to try and um, adapt and, and develop and evolve mechanisms to avoid predators. So that was always sort of interesting to me. And when I started working on these sort of interactions with copepods, which happen to be these very small, minute crustaceans that are relatives of, of crabs, shrimps, and lobster, and they're, it turns out they're one of the most abundant animal groups on the planet. And they're responsible for this sort of massive transfer of energy from these primary producers, these single-cell algae that are in the ocean, uh, transferring that energy 
into higher trophic levels or links in the food web, such as things such as fish. And there's uh, turns out that because of that, they're a very important link in marine food webs. And you know, it turns out that also that you know because everything in the ocean tries to eat you, um, that uh, you're you know you're you have a lot of selective pressure uh, to be able to detect and avoid predators. Um, and so a lot of the questions that I started asking when I started my PhD uh, revolved around around that initially, this sort of interaction between these very important uh, copepods, this group of animals that are, are very important in the ocean and, and all aquatic environments, and this sort of link to fish, which, uh, you know, are, are very important for, for people, obviously. A lot of people rely on, on fisheries and consume fish. So the questions we started asking about, okay, how are, how are fish capturing copepods? You know, how are they able to be successful? And, and likewise, on the flip side, what keeps copepods as one of the most abundant animal groups on the planet? So what are the factors that play into whether a copepod is able to detect an approaching predator? And how exactly is Dr. Gemmel and his colleagues able to observe and measure the movements of these sea creatures? In an aquatic environment, um, a lot of the questions revolve around, around fluid. So uh, copepods don't actually have image-forming eyes, so the only way they can detect the approach of a predator is through detecting these very small disturbances in the fluid around it. So you can imagine as an object such as a predator, a predatory fish is moving through the water towards a copepod, it's generating this disturbance and it's sort of pushing water out in front of it and around it and the water's moving around that animal. And so that's the only way that copepods really have of detecting the approach of a predator. So very quickly, the questions became sort of linked to the physics, the, the actual fluid properties and the signaling that was happening. And uh, to answer some of these questions, we needed to be able to, to visualize and quantify and understand what exactly was happening in the fluid. And to do that, we, we relied on some pretty new techniques as far as, at least as far as biology is concerned. So one of them was uh, high-speed digital holography. So these are actually making these, these holograms, and the way you do that is through uh, a combination of uh, this setup which uses these collimated beams of laser light, uh, and laser light's very important because it's a single wavelength. And that allows, you know, these, these single wavelengths that are, are what's called coherent, which means all the waves are moving sort of in unison with each other. And when those waves hit objects, all of a sudden they become sort of uh, bent and refracted and, and reflected. And you start to get, when you record that on a camera, uh, it looks like these sort of fuzzy concentric rings around an object, and we call those interference patterns. And you can actually reconstruct that and that will give you sort of uh, the whole volume that you're interested in can become in focus. It's a, it's a neat technique because so what it allows you to do ultimately is um, track the motion of prey, predators, and if we add these very small particles into the water, 
Uh, we can actually track the movement of those particles, which also tells us what the fluid is doing at the same time, which is important because, you know, in, in, a, in an open sort of 3D environment such as, such as the ocean, things aren't moving just in, in two dimensions. So you have movement in sort of all directions, and with traditional video methods, uh, it really makes it hard to, to track and, and understand that whole interaction when things are moving in three dimensions, uh, simply because cameras tend to focus on a, on a single plane, and, and you, you know, lose a lot of information when things swim in and out of that plane. They become in and out of focus, and, and you lose a lot of information. So, so we quickly sort of um, got you know, into in collaborating with um, sort of mechanical engineers who were who were sort of developing these types of techniques. So, so that part was sort of exciting. So basically, the researchers came up with a device that's similar to a 3D radar gun to measure the movement of these creatures, much like a state trooper using a radar gun to measure the speed of an approaching vehicle. It's pretty cool. Now, in addition to covapods and seahorses. Dr. Gemmel has also looked at other sea creatures, including one that's captured the fancies of many aquarium lovers, the jellyfish. What does the jellyfish have to teach us about propulsion and movement through water? Uh, one of the model organisms we were working with was actually jellyfish, which is sort of interesting because jellyfish um, aren't typically thought of as very effective swimmers don't swim with any particular direction most of the time, and, and they're often sort of swept away by strong currents. So at first it would sort of seem like a uh, sort of a strange model to use for something that could ultimately be used in vehicle design, but it turns out that uh, the research we did found that jellyfish are actually one of the most efficient movers on the planet. So they actually get from point A to point B using less energy than virtually anything else on the planet. So yeah, and they're, they're about two to five times more energetically efficient uh, than fish, which are, are very efficient. And it's sort of, that was interesting because, you know, jellyfish, if you look at just their, they call it sort of a mechanical efficiency or just looking at how much energy they, they put out behind them versus how fast they go, um, they're they're pretty inefficient. So we we took this new approach and looked at them from an energetic standpoint, and and it turns out that they use vortex rings uh, very effectively. So they sort of contract and squeeze their body and then relax and expand. And this combination and interaction of of vortex rings allows them to be very efficient. Cool. So that makes you wonder if studying the motion of jellyfish can also give us blueprint ideas for future aircrafts. Movement through fluid, whether it be air uh, or, or, or liquid like water, follow the same sort of general laws and principles of physics. Hold up. Did he just say that air is a fluid? So air, air is a fluid, water is a liquid. So people that work, uh, a lot of engineers that work in, in fluid dynamics, um, sort of uh, jump both from, from air to water quite a bit uh, simply because both media are, are, are considered fluids and they're subject to the same general principles of physics and, and locomotion and propulsion. So, 
you know, things, things that are governing, it's one of the interesting things and sort of one of the directions that um, we're going uh, in the future with regards to animal propulsion is the, um, the fact that, you know, what's governing flight in a bird is the same underlying principles that are governing, uh, you know, swimming in a fish or movement in a jellyfish, for example. So, yeah, so it's kind of exciting. So we're, we're looking to sort of understand some of these underlying mechanisms and, and underlying, uh, you know, secrets of, of sort of propulsion. And the hope would be that that can then be applied to anything from, from flight to swimming to, um, you know, slow movement of a jellyfish to fast swimming of a tuna, something like that. So how does studying smaller sea creatures like jellyfish scale up to bigger objects like water vehicles? Do the same physics apply? When you talk about fluids, a lot of times people will talk about this term called Reynolds number, um, which is sort of this non-dimensional unit that gives you an indication of whether you're working with inertial flows, which are what we tend to be operating in. Uh, versus viscous flows, and things that are operating in viscous flows are very small. So to them, you know, swimming through water or moving through air feels like moving through something very viscous like honey. And so basically, but, but most things that we encounter every day are sort of uh, moving in these, in these inertial ranges, so the Reynolds numbers tend to be high. And as long as you're sort of operating in that, a lot of the principles should stay the same. So basically, if you're if you're bigger than uh, you know for a, a, a liquid environment like water, if you're bigger than a few centimeters in size, uh, the principles are probably going to be relatively similar. So that means that animals such as jellyfish, humans. And objects like water vehicles operate under similar conditions, but to copepods, which are only one or two millimeters long, traveling through water can be like moving through syrup for us. Next, Dr. Gemmel talks about how studying fluid motion and predator-prey interactions requires similar strategies as studying propulsion. The techniques we use to resolve and measure fluid motion in predator-prey interactions are the same methods that we use to look at fluid motion around uh, propulsive structure such as the, the jellyfish bell or a fish tail or something like that. So it was an easy, it's an easy transition to sort of go back and forth because uh, you're really using the same techniques and the same instrumentation, uh, just answering a different question and sort of looking at different ends of the body, you know, predation. Uh, you know, you're looking at the head end and what's happening there. And, uh, you know, propulsion, you're sort of looking at the back end. Okay, now back to these seahorses. If you were a seahorse, where would you go to hunt copepods? And if you were a copepod, where would be a safe place to hang out? Dr. Gamble talks about the importance of location, location, location in this next segment. With regards to the, the predator-prey stuff, I mean, the seahorse results, you know, they, they initially started by these earlier studies from my PhD that were, were more just focused on, you know, okay, how are, how are fish able to capture these really evasive, uh, highly sensitive copepods? 
and we used sort of uh, three or four species of fish, um, and we looked at them under these calm conditions. And that's sort of important because you can imagine if you're uh, a small copepod and you're relying on detecting these very small fluid signals uh, to, to tell you whether the, the predator is approaching. You can imagine if, if you know, someone was to take you and place you out on a coral reef, for example, which typically has sort of a, an exposed area, you know, lots of wave action. There's water. There's water moving over a pretty rough bottom, uh, and you can imagine that's going to generate a lot of turbulence or sort of complex flow all over the place. And in those types of environments, um, it turns out the copepods are actually uh, at a bit of a disadvantage because it really be- becomes more difficult for them to tease out the signal of the predator from other just flow artifacts all around them. On the flip side, when you go to the sort of the lagoon, the back reefs, and into these seagrass beds, and particular seagrasses are, are have been known to really dampen flow and make it laminar, which is sort of straight straight flow as as water moves through the seagrass beds. Uh, similar to how you could be standing on an exposed coastline and it'd be very windy, and you're feeling a lot of wind and swirling wind, but if you were to go into the middle of a forest where that wind, if you just walk backwards into a forest, that wind becomes quite dampened and you, you feel less of the effects. Similar thing in a seagrass bed. So as the, the flow comes through the seagrass, it actually dampens and slows that flow down and makes it a much more calm environment. So in these types of environments is typically where we find a lot of seahorse species. Seahorses in the seagrass beds, the seahorses you find on the actual reefs themselves tend to be in the back reefs uh, and the patch reefs, which are, tend to be more productive and also uh, quite a bit calmer. And in these environments, um, in theory, the copepod should have the advantage because now you have uh, a much much less noise to sort of have to deal with, much less sort of fluid artifacts that you're trying to tease out to, from the predator. Um, and so... We, we sort of, you know, it's a sort of a hypothesis of mine that the reason why you sort of see the seahorses having this really unique head shape in this environment is there may have been a stronger selective pressure to be able to approach these very uh, evasive copepods with, sort of, with stealth. So, mm-hmm. you know, you need to be able to get very close. In order for these seahorses to feed effectively, they have to get very close to these uh, evasive copepods, and with the species of seahorse we looked at, these small species, the little dwarf seahorse, it needs to get to within about one millimeter of a copepod in order to make an effective strike. And so, so once it gets there, it strikes so fast that the copepod doesn't even have uh, a chance to escape. So, if the seahorse can get very close to the copepod, it's essentially game over for the copepod. So it's all about the approach. The approach becomes very important, and it turns out that the the head shape of the seahorse really helps to create this uh, zone of low disturbance in areas where the strikes occur. Okay, so that's all fine and dandy for the seahorses who have evolved horse-shaped heads to help camouflage them. 
But what about the other poor fish who do not have such tricks? How do they manage to catch themselves some tasty copepods? So while seahorses themselves are in these calm environments are up to about 90% successful versus other fish that you would find on a coral reef, you place them in a calm environment, they're only capturing copepods maybe about 30 or 40% of the time for the species that we looked at. And it sort of got us thinking, so there's other fish that live in relatively calm environments, and, and so... You know, they're also able to capture copepods pretty successfully, not with the, the, the success rate of a seahorse. I mean, 90% is pretty high. I mean, it's over 90% in some cases. So that's pretty effective for, for any predator. But we, we started looking and thinking about how other fish can develop and, and overcome the escape capabilities of these these copepods. And so we looked at sort of zebrafish, which are fish that are very well studied a lot for genetic studies. You know, they're they're very abundant, there's lots known about them. And but they but they will also feed very heavily on, on zooplankton and copepods. And it turns out we used uh, these three dimensional techniques again to look at how they were able to capture copepods. And it's really interesting. So there appears to be sort of two competing strategies. Uh, the seahorses, we know, are, are using just the shape of their head in, in order to create uh, a zone of very low disturbance, whereas other fish have sort of a blunter, wider head, sort of the traditional head shape of most fish tends to be sort of a little much blunter than that of the, the mouth of the seahorse. And it creates, uh, as it normally swims, it creates quite a bit of disturbance. But it turns out what these fish do when they get close to the copepod is they actually create a little bit of suction. Their mouth opens very slightly, and they create a little bit of suction just before they get to the copepod and before they make their big lunging strike. And that allows them to actually, uh, instead of pushing water out in front of them, the suction sort of matches the speed at which they're swimming forward. So it sort of creates this little stealthy cloak uh, in, in the zone where, where the copepods are. So it's pretty neat. So you've got sort of two, two competing strategies for sort of overcoming the, the sensory capabilities of these copepods. It looks like some of these fish that, that have the more traditional head shape that are feeding primarily on copepods um, are using sort of a behavioral method to overcome their, the, the prey's capabilities versus, you know, seahorses and pipefish, which are using uh, morphological or sort of a shape-based method to overcome that. So, so that was kind of interesting. So there you have it. The research Dr. Gemmel did not only gives us a glimpse into the secret predatory lives of seahorses, but could also someday give us ideas on how to build more efficient vehicles that move through water and air, which we learned today are both technically fluids. His research also helps us understand the minute details of predator-prey relationships that occur on a small scale, representing the transfer of energy from copepods to fish. When calculated over a global scale, this accounts for an immense amount of energy moving through the food web, which is tremendously important for the health of our oceans. I hope you have enjoyed today's show. My name is Chenan Zhang, and you have been listening to the Grox Science Show.